Uh, let me get my, uh, so many notes about different George Washington Gales. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Sunday, October 20th. My name's Joe Hicks. And I'm Evan Kelly. And Evan, what are we looking to do here? Well, what we're looking to do is introduce good faith discussion of a number of topics. We're looking to do our best to evaluate issues fairly, and we invite you to do the same. Yeah, and we are only human, as you are. We want to discuss things the best we can, but who knows? We all have faults. So anyway, Evan, what do you want to talk about this week? Well, Joe, I want to talk about the fighting words doctrine. But before we do that, I want to take a brief moment to give a sincere thank you to everyone who reached out with support after hearing the first episode. This is going to drop on a Sunday, but we recorded it on uh, Thursday, the, the first Thursday when the first episode became available. And the initial outpouring of support from from friends and, and family has just been very encouraging. So a sincere thank you to everyone who is involved in building a community around this show. Yes, most definitely. So the fighting words doctrine comes to my mind from a, a series of memes and other discourse that populated Facebook a while back in regards to punching Nazis. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Mm -hmm. So a general format of the meme would go something like a couple of people talking and it eventually ends up with the revelation that since Nazis there or neo-Nazis, their entire ethos involves ethnic cleansing, the existence of a Nazi or Nazi symbology or paraphernalia is incitement and you can feel free to haul off and punch the Nazi. That's the gist of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was put into real practice with noted neo-Nazis such as Richard Spencer being punched in the street and in the minds of many, this is entirely justified under the fighting words doctrine that, that Nazism is inherently incitement. And I just wanted to unpack this a little bit and figure out what fighting, what the fighting words doctrine does and does not deem is protected speech. Mm -hmm. So, In reality, the fighting words doctrine is a limitation to free speech, a limitation on the First Amendment that's been upheld by the Supreme Court if your words are intended to incite violence. The Supreme Court case that established the fighting words doctrine was Chaplinsky v. New Hampshire in 1942. Walter Chaplinsky was holding a protest in the city streets in a New Hampshire town against organized religion. What happened next, the events are in dispute between different sources, but at the end of a considerable amount of turmoil, Chaplinsky called the town marshal a racketeer and a fascist and was arrested. Chaplinsky challenged the validity of his arrest on First Amendment grounds, saying that he had the right to call the marshal whatever he wanted because it was his freedom of speech. The case made it all the way to the Supreme Court, which ruled in a unanimous decision that Chaplinsky's arrest 
was legal. Essentially, Chaplinsky was found to not be in the category of protected speech because his words were intended to provoke and incite the negative reaction of the town marshal. And if you'll give me just one second, I want to pull up the actual words that were written in the ruling. So in the first ruling on this, the the defining one, the words that were meant for fighting weren't even a direct challenge for fighting. Exactly. They were just ruled to have been offensive and dismissive enough to provoke a response which fell outside of the bounds of First Amendment protection. Mm -hmm. So this is what Justice Frank Murphy wrote. There are certain well-defined and narrowly limited classes of speech, the prevention and punishment of which have never been thought to raise any constitutional problem. These include the lewd and obscene, the profane, the libelous, and the insulting or fighting words, those which by their very utterance inflict injury or tend to incite an immediate breach of the peace. It has been well observed that such utterances are no essential part of any exposition of ideas and are of such slight social value as a step to truth that any benefit that may be derived from them is clearly outweighed by the social interest in order and morality. So to clean this up, we find that there are certain cases where speech is not protected. If something is lewd and obscene and profane, this got into obscenity laws that were more common at the time, or if they were libelous. To this day, libel is not protected speech. You can't spread falsehoods about someone to damage them and claim it as freedom of speech. And finally, these ideas of fighting words, where if what you're saying is just intended to harm someone, you're not contributing to the marketplace of ideas. You're not actually trying to express a valid viewpoint. You're just trying to hurt people using words as your tool. And so, therefore, they cannot be protected under the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. So, it stands to reason that individuals espousing Nazi ideology can't really be contributing to good faith discourse, and therefore that type of speech wouldn't be protected. But it gets a little bit more complicated than that, as the fighting words doctrine was clarified in a couple of later Supreme Court cases, the first of which being Street v. New York in 1969, So this case struck down an anti-flag burning and defamation law in the state of New York because the court ruled that something being merely offensive was not the same as being fighting words. It's not enough to say something that someone would potentially disagree with. There needs to be other criteria met in order to justify something as fighting words. In this case, it specifically meant that just because someone found flag defamation and flag burning offensive, it was not enough to say that flag burning was fighting words because there was no specific incitement of violence. And this was further elaborated on in the 1971 case Cohen v. California, where a man named Paul Robert Cohen wore a jacket with a patch that said, fuck the draft in a California courthouse. He was arrested for doing so under a 
disturbance of the peace violation. And his trial went all the way up to the Supreme Court, which ruled that Cohen could not actually be convicted and that his jacket was protected speech because the jacket contained no personally abusive epithets. This clarified that for something to fall outside of the bounds of protected speech and to classify as fighting words, it needed to be very specific and directed. So where does this leave us with punching Nazis? While there is clearly reason to believe that hate speech and incitement and Nazi ideology are not protected speech, the actual definition of fighting words is narrow and it must be very specific. Someone who is a known Nazi is not violating, is not guilty of speaking fighting words and therefore cannot be arrested for holding those ideas, cannot be punched in the street for doing so. I'm not trying to come out as pro-Nazi. I'm absolutely, this is an anti-Nazi podcast. Got to make that very clear. Mm -hmm. We We don't believe that there's any legitimacy to white supremacist viewpoints or neo-Nazi viewpoints. Exactly. And I'm not even going to comment on the morality of punching Nazis. However, using an incitement or a fighting words defense for punching Nazis is not legally valid. Legally, it's still an assault. And it's important to understand what fighting words actually are and how incitement actually holds up in a legal context. Like, it it seems like I I took a constitutional law class in college and we talked a bit about this. And I remember um, talking that certain versions of extreme right wing speech are permitted under uh, law. So and it kind of falls under this. So if you were to say, I'm going to kill that Jew, like that specific one then that could be grounds for uh, fighting words. But if you say, I I advocate for the extermination of Jews in general, then that is not adequately fighting words. Because it's not a specific directed threat. It's still horrible, but it does not meet the legal definition for fighting words and therefore in which case physical action could be seen as justifiable self-defense. That's how the KKK has been able to continue to be an organization. They essentially got, they, they were one of the people who helped very well to define this carve out is that saying, you know, if they were to say, Hey, everybody this week, we're going to go kill this black person then that would very obviously be fighting words and would you know be cause to disrupt the organization and charge a whole bunch of people but if they're saying we are against the advancement of colored people and we do not believe in their rights as people then that's not this that that's not actionable fighting words that's not something under our legal framework that we can do anything about. And I think it's fair to question if this is a good system. I think it's fair to question if 
the line between a specific and a general threat is somewhat arbitrary, but nonetheless, that is what exists in the status quo. Mm -hmm. And then again, this is what is actionable by government um, to deal with. Well, there's the government element and then there's also the the justifiable self-defense element. I it is a crime for me to hit someone for saying something that I disagree with. It's not a crime for me to defend myself. If right. and that's that's where the fighting words and incitement come in is that if words rise to the level of a direct threat, I can take preventative physical action to defend myself. But it has to be specific and directed and based on typically some sort of identity like race or religious heritage or ethnicity. And again, this is a, um, with the whole free speech debate or debates, because there are many, there is always the distinction between the government action and, or the, uh, the actions that the government takes once something happens and what happens in the private world between private citizens. And this is one scenario. So, so, you know, for some people, it could be completely uh, morally upstanding for uh, someone to beat up someone for being a white supremacist. But legally, unless they were specifically citing or inciting harm on that individual, then it is not okay to go after them legally. Yes. And, it's important. I think that's a really good point that you make, Joe, that it, it only has to do with official legal proceedings. Just because something doesn't rise to the level of fighting words doesn't mean that it's not hate speech. It doesn't mean that this speech doesn't, say, violate the terms of use agreement for social media. I think that it is absolutely fair and absolutely legal to deplatform neo-Nazis, even without specific threats of violence, because it is a hateful ideology and an inherently threatening ideology. By giving those people a platform, you are in a way saying that is part of polite society. Yeah. And in addition to condoning it and giving it that official shield, you are propagating it. Obviously, with or without social media, these ideas will continue to fester, but giving them more exposure will obviously expose the ideas to more people. And that's that's what's important mm-hmm. to realize about um, the ruling in uh, Chaplinsky v. New Hampshire is that the reason why certain forms of speech are not protected under the First Amendment is because they're not expression. They're not about idea generation or idea synthesis. They're just bigotry and attempts to inflict violence on marginalized groups. Mm -hmm. And this is an area of law. Like you said, there have been a number of court cases around it. So it is kind of decided what is fighting words and what is not. Some people like to think, throw it up that, oh, man, who gets to decide what's what's good and what's bad? Or if something's uh, 
against the law or not. Well, we've already decided and there are clear steps to what is actionable by the government to punish or not. Yes. And it's not this kind of ooh, up in the air. I, I say I like chocolate ice cream and then we find that the manufacturing for chocolate is is deeply inhumane. So I'm advocating the enslavement of people. No, it's it's not a slippery slope like that, at least from a governmental perspective. Yes, yes, definitely. What, what polite society thinks is polite is a whole other story. So you've, you've used this concept of polite society a couple times. I'm actually interested to see. I, I think that that's kind of a, a term that we throw around. But what's your conceptualization of polite society? I'm interested to hear what you what you mean when you use that term. When I use that term, I mean using speech and ideas that people won't necessarily get upset with you when you use them. It's kind of analogous to political correctness in a way. I mean, it it is pretty analogous to political correctness. So in polite society, it's not okay to go to uh, someone's house for dinner and then completely trash the quality of that dinner. If you want to continue being friends and in good company with them, that's just not something you do mm-hmm. in polite society. Now, you are poli- completely within your First Amendment right with the government to say that that meal was trash, but it doesn't mean that everybody else has to look up to you and say, oh, good on you for expressing your opinion. We're really glad you did that. Yeah. The rights that we have are not synonymous with acceptable actions. I I definitely get that. I I never really uh, had quarrels with it. I just thought it would be interesting to to hear the explanation, and and I believe it was. So just uh, in conclusion, Nazis suck. I guess you can punch them if you want, but you're you're not shielded from the legal ramifications if you do so. At least in the United States. Correct. This is all U.S. specific. For all those foreign listeners that we know we have. They're out there. They're out there. Out, out, out in the world. So, Joe. Yes, Evan. What do you want to talk about? I want to talk about the pressing issue that is Native American mascots. It's it's real big in the news these days, which it is not. But it came up uh, the other day. I was having a conversation at work and uh, the guy I was talking with got onto a bit of a rant about things you can't do these days. Oh, and, my yeah. And one of them was uh yeah he's a man from milwaukee and he was talking about how marquette university in the early 2000s they they changed their uh, mascot or their team they were the warriors the marquette warriors and then they decided to change that and what they ended up changing it to was the marquette golden eagles so this is a subject matter that uh both Evan and I have interfaced a little bit. 
we both attended the University of Illinois, uh, which very notably had a mascot of Chief Alinawick, who was retired in 2007 and has not been replaced and is still a very controversial figure. And uh, Evan, I believe you're also an Indians fan. I am. Who also has their own issues with their their uh, name and mascot. Yes. And all of those things. Yeah, Chief Wahoo and then the Indian Indian's name is is also controversial. Yes. So this is something that has had a lot of conversations about it. A lot of people feel very passionately about it. So with Chief Illini, I there are a lot of people who really support the chief people in my age group, even who, you know, most of the time we like to think that, Oh, kids these days are very liberal or just take up the most liberal cause. There, there were a fair number of people who are still very supportive of the chief, even though he had been banned and uh, across, you know, a wide portion of the campus considered, uh, inappropriate but a little background on chief alinawick so yeah (laughs) because this ends up mattering a lot in this conversation so chief alinawick is a made-up figure it was not that they decided oh there's this notable figure in native american history that we want to be our symbol And then side note, in these conversations, there's a big difference between the idea of symbols for a school or a team and mascots for a team, which um, is a distinction maybe we'll get into later. Who knows? So they just kind of thought of the idea of having a Native American man be the mascot for the school or represent the football team and gave a dance during halftime at football games and all the such. So this is part of the problem is that this isn't a real person. This is he, the tribe that he came from wasn't decided until years after the symbol started. And while Chief Alinawick is supposed to be from the Alinawick tribe of Illinois, which is where Illinois gets its namesake from, his depiction is with native dress from Sioux Indians uh, of the Sioux tribe, not the native Alinawick. And he does dances that came from Boy Scout of America lore and not actual Native American dances taught by Native Americans. And every portrayer, official portrayer of Chief Alinawick was white. Nobody had Native American ancestry at all. So I wanted to contrast this with a school that is often stated as the people who got away with it. And that is the Florida State Seminoles. So the Seminoles, they have, uh, it's it's a duo group. It's Osceola and Renegade, who is a Native American chief and his horse. Now, Osceola is based on a real 
Native American tribe chief in a real Native American tribe that still exists. And the Seminoles of Florida actually had their hands in creating uh, Osceola and Renegade, the symbols for Florida State University. If I may may interject briefly, because I think this is really important. When you say they had a hand in creating the symbols do you do you know specifically what that looked like what the the process was like and how that was dictated so the the tribe specifically gave florida state university to uh gave them permission to use the imagery of osceola um at the time and there is some and there is some controversy within the tribe today of whether it should still be used or not. But then they also created the dress of uh, the symbol. And then also it's there there isn't too much to the tradition. Uh, what what Osceola does is ride out in a horse to center field, throws a flaming spear into the ground and to some degree, that's that's the biggest part of it. There is no like dance. There is no uh, other characteristics that would be that would be uh, are seen as more appropriative or uh, just stealing their culture. So the biggest distinction that I want to make in this whole debate is that. There were a lot of Native American mascots that were kind of just generically Native American man who didn't really belong to a tribe. His only characteristic was that he was Native American or they would have said Indian at the time. And no Native American people were involved in the process and the character had no story. With Osceola and Renegade, there was collaboration with Native Americans. There is a story. It's based on a real person. And this leads to greater legitimacy as being a symbol for the school than someone who was just created by a bunch of people who wanted an Indian to be their mascot. And and in 2005, there's this kind of famous list that the NCAA had that of a bunch of schools that had Indian mascots and names that they uh, believed were hostile and abusive. And the Florida State Seminoles were originally on that list, but they were later given an exemption because of their relationship with the Seminoles in Florida. So... There, that is a distinction, but it, it's not wholly satisfying to everybody. That it's it's a it's a lane which is definitely deemed better than the other route, but it is still not seen as wholly unobjectionable. And that's, I think, what what my sort of commentary on this is is that against a backdrop of violent, violent oppression, it becomes very easy for white people or others in positions of power to assume that they know what tribes want 
and what they find respectable and what they find offensive. And to my mind, if you are not listening to the people whose culture you are using and profiting off of, you cannot possibly be you cannot possibly make a good faith claim to be doing anything other than continuing an oppressive cycle. And mm-hmm. go ahead. But what, one thing, what, what makes it really hard for a lot of people, I believe is that. So chief Alinawick from Illinois known as chief was very revered by Illinois fans, extremely revered that even 10 or so more years after he's gone, that there are still people who take it very seriously and that they have unofficially continued to name new chiefs, even in his absence from official performance. And people hold him in high regard and high respect as a symbol. But where we get into the issue is that they only just hold that character in high esteem or in great respect. It's not through respecting the chief that then there is also great respect for Native American tradition and values. It's that they just respect that one character who happens to be Native American. So if you have a character that is more rooted in actual tribal history, you know, it is approved in some way by the tribe that it is depicting, then in a way you are also revering the history by revering the symbol. Do you think that people would be so would cling to the chief so ardently today if the university had immediately found a replacement symbol. Now, I think that the kind of dissent among the students since his removal would have dissipated, but the uh, calls from the alumni, I don't believe would have died down. I guess um, where my mind sort of is on this is that people people love tradition. I think it's it's natural to love tradition. It ties us to our past. If traditions last, it gives us hope that that we can last beyond ourselves into the future. And so I'm wondering if a, a the creation of a new tradition, an alternative non appropriative symbol to hang our hats on wouldn't have assuaged some of the pain, at least of, as you said, current students, and also potentially alumni. If there was real institutional buy-in around, say, Alma Otter, that's that's what team I am. I think, I think Alma Otter is the way to go. I guess I feel like that maybe could have lessened or at least shortened the cycle of discourse around this to the point where the, you know, we, we were in junior high school when the chief was eliminated, you know, Mm -hmm. years before we ever attended the university. And yet it won't go away. And people who 
as you mentioned, are, are our age who never were part of the university when the chief was officially sanctioned still cling to that symbol because that's all we've got. Even yeah. officially. And I think one thing that has made it real difficult to, you know, find a new symbol is the extreme respect everybody had or deference that they had to the chief that, the, the school would not accept if, you know, they went from the chief, this great, you know, what they felt as this great and powerful figure to just one day, oh, we're the bulldogs now. A lot of people would just find that outright unacceptable. So there has been great difficulty of trying to find a new mascot or symbol. Everybody wants something that was on the level or around what the chief was to everybody else. And that's almost an impossible task. Yeah, it's it's a quandary because I feel like for all the reasons you've mentioned, it's really harmful to perpetuate the chief and the memory of the chief and the culture surrounding the chief in the campus community. And it seems maybe stepping out of of an objective way and just sort of how I emotionally process all this, it, it feels like people love a symbol because it represents something to them that isn't racist. And then when it turns out that the symbol, aside from all the positive association they have with it, when it finds out that that symbol does tangible harm to the people it allegedly represents that they they don't consider that they're more concerned with what it means to them than what it could mean to other people it's it's an empathy gap that that tugs at me Mm -hmm. and i also have gone back and watched videos of chief performances and i look at that and it's at least to me, it it seems very it, it does not seem to be actual traditional Native American dance. It seems to be, you know, white culture's understanding of what Native American dances and there's are. There's definitely a unique harm associated with that, but I guess I'm just still trying to grapple with the idea that even if it is respectful, even if it is traditional what right does a sports team have to leverage that without giving something back without earning approval and sharing in whatever good fortune results from it yes it is definitely a quandary and one that has not been settled because there are still i mean there's still the indians yes there's still the Washington Redskins. There there are still questions surrounding this. And how do we as society deal with that? And there's, I think we can pretty much understand, there's a pretty direct link to why a, a, a symbol like Chief Wahoo is bad, right? So he's depicted in a way that uh, oppressive groups are not. So he's he's uh, ostensibly a human character who's given features that are inhuman 
like the red skin, the big grin, and this reinforces the notion that the group is less than human, or at least not the same as the dominant group. And when this pervades in the culture, it's subtly easier to oppress groups who we already otherize. But then there's a category of teams like the Chicago Blackhawks, which is also a team that I love, that by my accounts, granted extremely imperfect and not impartial, seems to be a respectful logo, one that does not engage in the same types of errors that the Chief Wahoo logo makes. So there, there's a line that needs to be drawn, and I, I'll admit I feel completely inadequate in discussing where to draw it. And as a sports fan, it, it's it's something that unsettles me and that I can't really seem to reach a conclusion on. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, in our position, that I mean, we just talked about it, but going forward, there's really the the best thing is to listen to what affected people have to say about it and listen to them while that and that too is even imperfect because there are out there there are mixed surveys of native people on their thoughts on native american mascots or symbols so Sometimes the survey comes back, they care. Sometimes the survey comes back, they don't care. It could have to do with the the, uh, wording of the question or the people that they interview. But regardless, it's it's not it's not something that that their society or their their uh, culture is fully decided on. Sure. And. I think this is an area where I have seen firsthand some hypocrisy. This uh, is in regards to the much debated Washington Post study that came out a few years ago, which indicated that 90% of Native Americans weren't offended by the term Redskin, and I I understand that there are some legitimate critiques of the study that have come about since. But I remember I was in a class at at Bowling Green, not at U of I at the time, and a class a classroom in a communication class full of predominantly white students seemed to be tripping over themselves to explain why the study couldn't possibly be true that they still knew better than self-reporting from actual Native Americans. And again, this isn't to mm-hmm. overlook legitimate flaws in the study. I'm not, I'm not intimately familiar with the entirety of the discourse. But my concern is that a large subset of people who I saw interfacing with the idea were more concerned with towing the perceived good ideological line and in the end they just ended up completely dismissing or potentially dismissing the voices of the people they were claiming to uplift and so in the research um so i there was one year in the past like five years where 
in the University of Illinois homecoming parade, there was a group of, I forget what their name was, but there are a group advocating for the return of the chief and they marched in the parade. And at one point, a chief impersonator joined their parade march and they put a stop to that. But then the day after there were a group of people who had a, a small protest and they were members of the Sioux tribe and they had come uh, in support of the chief because the chief wore Sioux traditional garb. So that further complicates things. So it's, it's something that is definitely not settled. There is not a bright red line through the whole thing that makes it easy to see where stepping over is bad and where you're in line. It's, uh, it's something that will have to be hashed out. Sure. Sure. And, um, I want to admit to our viewers that this is a topic in which I I feel particularly intellectually vulnerable and, if, if any, I feel like part of remaining adequately informed is being willing to solicit the opinions of others. And so if, if anyone listening believes that I've, I've aired or, or has an interesting perspective once this, this episode comes out, I would love to hear it. I, like I said, this is something of great concern to me and my, my learning on this topic is, is far from complete. And while we're at a somber moment, I will plug that you can send that to our new email address, podcast at adequatelyinformed.com. Neat. So, yeah, that's the discussion on Native American mascots. So, Evan, what, what, what's our main topic today? Our main topic today is going to be, I want to say, the sixth, maybe sixth Democratic debate. The most recent Democratic it, debate. The just it's happened. actually only the fourth. The fourth? Yes. Well, it's the fourth round of debates. The first two were divided. So that's where I'm getting six from. Yeah, I was just about to say that. Um, so it's the sixth televised show of debates round but four. it is the fourth yeah that's the fourth round with the biggest debate stage ever oh my gosh man you know fox gets wwe and and everyone else is just trying to keep pace <laughs> oh man there were there were so many people on that stage i like one of the first things in my notes is who has to go <laughs> okay, who's gonna um, go? So, I believe Klobuchar has to go. I concur. I believe Gabbard has to go. I thought she had a good I, performance, but she doesn't have. I don't think she has many legs left on this campaign. I believe Stair has to go. Please. Well, okay. Just I, I didn't hate. That was the first time I've really seen Tom Steyer speak, and. I think he can articulate for I think he can articulately argue for positions like a wealth tax as a billionaire that lend him a little bit more credibility. But I don't I that doesn't mean I view him as a top tier candidate. Well, it, the, the, this is 
this is almost directly one of my notes is that, you know, Stare, he seems like a, you know, a, a good friend of the cause. He definitely seems like someone who could really do some good work in democratic politics, but I don't think he should even be on the stage for running for president. I don't think that's his place. I think it's important to remember or, it's not just that he can do good things for for the Democratic Party. He has. He was a huge fundraiser for Obama and he has mm-hmm. worked in other NGO capacities and I think it it might be more along the lines of he's done all of that, so now he wants to take it to the next level. Again, I don't see him getting any traction, but mm-hmm. I think maybe he's at a different point in his political arc. And then also the last person that I put down that needs to go is O'Rourke. I, I think O'Rourke I think O'Rourke needs to go. I just want him to stop being a politician and host a radio show. His voice is so smooth. He is the best speaker on that stage. And it often belies the fact that he's weak on policy and other shortcomings that he has as a candidate. But hot damn, I could listen to him for hours. Yeah. Like if if O'Rourke was going to have a moment, he would have had it by now. Well, he had Um, his moment uh, with the El Paso shooting and his his fiery response where he sort of dropped the 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 good politician act and used profanity. And the, the problem is that anyone who's having a moment it's not translating into polling support. And I I don't have a good handle on whether that's because of the inherent lack of reliability in our our political polling, or if the large field of candidates just makes it impossible for anyone to stick out in a meaningful way. But yeah, it's kind of come and gone and he didn't, he didn't boost himself into that top tier. And it, it just almost seems like (laughs) he almost seems like a hindrance to the democratic cause right now or like a liability like yeah we got a presidential candidates you know although he did refute this in the debate we had we got a candidate who wants to go door to door to collect your guns oh or you're 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 buying the the mayor pete argument or um or he he was you know very much flirting with the idea that churches could should lose their taxes have status for not marrying gay people or not being, you know, open to LGBTQ lifestyles. And that's just, that's pushing things into a place that are, isn't even quite ideas of the party. Yeah. <laughs> so the, uh, those, at least though, yeah, those five, did I, uh, did I say Booker? You didn't, but I hoped that you would. Yeah. Yeah, Booker was also over there. I guess I skipped over him. I don't know what his um, role on that stage was other than to not interact with the current topic, but to go back and try to police the moderators and to wring his hands over a couple of members of his party having a spirited disagreement or to chastise the moderators for inquiring about a hot button issue you know he doesn't have to be uh joe biden's little guardian angel um Mm -hmm. yeah it it just 
It, it seems like he's running for president because there were people who talked about him running for president. Yeah, I I can definitely concur with that sentiment. It, it just doesn't seem like his heart is in it. And now whether your heart has to be in it or not, you know, whatever, that's another question. But there are definitely other people out there going the other the extra mile. Yeah. Um, there, there's, there's never any buzz about him. He's never, it never seems like he ever comes up in people who he's never broken to the top tier Mm -hmm. of candidates. He's just kind of been middling. Now I like, I like Booker. I like him as a member of the party. I like how he talks. I like some of his ideas, but just in this capacity, it just doesn't seem like he's doing it. Yeah, uh, he's dating Rosario Dawson, though. That's pretty interesting. Oh, he's I thought they got married. No, no, he's he's a bachelor as of right now. At least, oh, as, of, I, I, at least as of earlier this week, maybe, maybe they eloped or something. <laughs> Everyone can hear the frantic sound of typing on two keyboards. Yeah. Huh. I could I would have sworn I heard something earlier this year about him getting married. Or maybe it was talking about the hypothetical of him getting married in the White House. Okay. Well, I guess that's not he's not married. This is good podcast material. Yeah. Um real time realizations. So after this debate, I hope, hope, hope that the field winnows more because it is it just feels just too big well and it doesn't seem like we're getting anywhere in these debates well what about all of the people who didn't even make this last debate stage and won't drop oh my yeah they they definitely need to drop if they didn't make this debate uh who who all was in this debate you you're a handy list guy what's what's going on who was in this debate yeah. Tulsi Gabbard, Tom Steyer, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Andrew Yang, Beto O'Rourke, Amy Klobuchar, Julian Castro. Yeah. Julian Castro, he can stay for at least another debate. I thought he I'll had give him a that. wonderful night. I, I, I score the debates, and on my scorecard, uh, he won. He won the whole night. I thought that he spoke with passion. I thought that he articulated both a commitment to the core principles of his campaign, such as immigration reform and confronting police brutality, while also expressing the openness to embrace ideas that he had not previously come out in favor of, such as piloting a universal basic income program. I thought that he... Mm -hmm sounded amazing and he didn't face any huge attacks he didn't have any large gaffes well uh until the very end because he was the first person to answer the final question and he spun his wheels on it when everyone else learned from his mistake and then just used it as their stump speech but um Mm. But that doesn't detract from the fact that castro i think finally looked like the polished and otherworldly intelligent politician that we all thought he could be. Yeah. I I like him because he's a Yimby. 
a yimby? It's the opposite of a nimby. So a nimby is a person who says, not in my backyard with new construction process. Yimby is a person who is for you know, greater development in urban areas or anywhere. So it's yes in my backyard. Okay. Is that something that he did as, as the mayor of San Antonio or? Uh, yeah. And he, I mean, he, he was also the, um, HUD. Guy. he was, yeah, yeah. He was at HUD. So, and not so much entirely his actions, but his, his, uh, talk on it or his positions on it. Gotcha. So now I can't name any of those specific <laughs> policies, but I remember listening to an interview with him that I, about that, that I really liked. Well, um, uh, I think he's still ultimately running for vice president, but uh, I thought he had a fantastic night and he was, he was my debate winner for as much as, or as little mm-hmm. as that means to you, dear listeners. Yeah. Now, now, since we're we're on the list, what what's your uh, let's do top twelve ranking for for Evan? All right, current power rankings as of October fourteenth. These are updated every Monday. Um, top twelve, number twelve, Amy Klobuchar. Eleven, Tulsi Gabbard. Ten, Biden. Nine, Steyer. Eight, O'Rourke. Seven Buttigieg, six Castro, five Booker, four Harris, three Yang, two Sanders, one Warren. Obviously, this is pre-debate. This will hopefully change significantly next week. Yeah, maybe this could be a a reoccurring segment until it's over. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's um, just a fun, fun game of is is Bernie or Elizabeth going to be number one, and then what's three through nineteen? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of what I it's. Mean, I, be like. I, I still think there's some validity in kind of what's going on in the one through five or six area. Um, there's still kind of things at play, and there's still a fair amount of time left, so things can change. But anyone who's like below six, you know, even in like polling averages, it's kind of like, ah, oh, what are you doing? Yeah. If you're um, not even currying 1% support, how can you, how can you possibly hang in this race? Is Marianne Williamson still, uh, is she still running? Oh, you know, she is. Yeah. I didn't because I asked, but, <laughs> uh, Tim, Tim Ryan. Yep. Yeah, he's he has not broke through in anything in this. Listen, he is an alum of Bowling Green State University, I mean, and I respect him. I feel like Jay Inslee was a better candidate than most of the top bottom tier, and he's already dropped out. Yeah, because he's got to go back and be governor again. Yeah. He has he, another he got, thing to run for. Ah, good for him. Yeah. Um, let me see. I thought it was weird. Well, it just seemed a bit odd to me that they started the the whole debate off with talking about impeachment because as I mean, I guess talking about it as the leaders of the party is one thing, but then also as people running for president, there's no real connection between them and impeachment. Yeah. It just seemed like almost a purity test. 
and they, they didn't have any dis disagreements. Everyone said, "Yeah, we want him impeached," and except yeah, for uh, Gabbard, half hour of the debate. G- Gabbard was no on impeachment. Was she? If I remember correctly, yeah, she was like. Um, my my note is here is boo Gabbard doesn't want to impeach because it would only divide the country more like justice would pe- make people mad. But she voted to uh, open the impeachment inquiry in the House. Well, then then I hate the stupid distinction. That's like, well, what if we'll impeach them in the House, but won't remove them? That will be good enough. It's like, no, it's a it's a whole process. It's not one or the other. If you just want to give him a slap on the wrist, then vote on a censure and get it over with. <laughs> it it seemed like she was not about it. Hmm. At least from my take. Well, when, when maybe I'm not adequately informed enough. <laughs> when the rubber met the road, she voted for it. I, I know that many of them have concerns about the political ramifications of impeachment, but... I don't think there was anyone who mm-hmm. said that the impeachment inquiry wasn't the right move. I would also like a this is unrelated, but I would like a supercut of every time each candidate gave a small anecdote about a somebody from a small town area of some state who's struggling. Like how Andrew Yang keeps name dropping like, oh, yeah, 35 million Ohio truckers are going to lose their job. First kind of thing. note is during the impeachment question about how Andrew Yang shoehorned in a response about Trump letting down the people of Ohio. Yeah. Yeah. He, he tried <laughs> Which, to you know, his audience, you know. He's- and you know what? Good pivot, because you didn't need to be talking about impeachment. And Andrew Yang, as an outsider who is not a politician, he has no input into the subject whatsoever. <laughs> like... His take doesn't mean anything at this point. Well, by that token, our takes don't mean anything. No, they don't. (laughs) But we're here. And we're not on the debate stage. (laughs) Um, Like, so Andrew Yang, so I could kind of believe maybe hearing from current Senate and congressional, you know, representatives on their take. But again, within the, the context of a presidential debate, it's kind of like, what what are we doing here? This is expressly something that would happen before your president and not something you're doing. Yeah, that's why I said it, it sounded like a purity test. It's almost as if we're, we're appealing to a, a section of the Democratic electorate that really only cares about one thing. And it doesn't matter yeah. if the next president can't control that one thing. They still want to hear them pay lip service. Yeah, but I really want to hear who they're going to appoint to key positions in government. Something that they actually do. Let me see. What is Biden ever going to start taking a nosedive? It it just each of these debates, it doesn't seem like he has good performances. Well, and on my debate scorecard, he's still he got the twelve out of 12 last place. So yeah, he's just not doing it. He's getting senile or that may be too strong, but it, it just, he's not packing the punch. He's not doing what he needs to do. He's not 
getting us excited and think making us think that he's going to really take it all on and make things happen. Yeah, he's he's not inspiring to me, at least. No. Yeah. And if Biden were to just ride off into the sunset, like before he even started this campaign, he could have just rode off into the sunset and enjoyed being one of the most popular politicians in the modern era. He had a few issues, but if he if he just called it quits, nobody would have blamed him. The most recent thing that everybody had remembered of him was his son dying. And well, that's tragic. It left it, his reputation on, you know, a somewhat Is better that the note. Recent thing? And I mean, really between between him, you know, his term as vice president ending and him running for president, I would say that was about the last biggest thing. Yeah. Fair enough. So he could have rode off into the sunset, but no, we're here. Yeah, we're here. Seeing him go. Guys like you and me, you'll just be angry at him. Yeah, we'll bag on him. Um, But I just really hope it doesn't end up being him. We had the, we had healthcare discussion again. Mm Mm-hmm. What is that? Every single time now, yep. we've had the the healthcare discussion, and it goes in circles. The they don't actually debate the merits of Medicare for all. It's just some people saying we're going to do it, the other people saying how are you going to pay for it, and then Bernie saying I will we'll tax people, and Elizabeth talking in a circle to avoid saying that she's going to raise taxes, and then the same voice is calling out but how are we gonna pay for it no matter what answer they get so even though elizabeth warren's plan and she fully knows that they'll end up increasing taxes but she very for whatever reason wants to die on this hill that it won't increase costs to people which i don't know truly if that's would be the case um but, but that's what she's she's selling anyway and yeah. and yeah she will not she will abs- she's someone has told her that admitting to a tax raise doesn't test well so evade like hell and i think it's fair to focus on costs as a more important metric of overall efficiency as opposed to just taxes but I, I don't know why she won't at least concede taxes go up by less than costs go down. I mean, I'm I'm thinking probably because this is this isn't going to be the the real priority of her administration. So she doesn't want to get all locked in on it. What is the real priority? It seems like her real priority is trying to tackle corruption, trying to create better democracy, uh, more efficient bureaucracy, and issues that stem from that, at least from my take. And and more child and child care and all that other stuff that she keeps going back to. I don't know if I agree that that makes her health care plan less of a commitment or if she doesn't want to also do that almost as fervently. Uh-huh. So I don't yeah, know. It, yeah, it just seems like she isn't as balls to the wall with it as everything else. So there's the bit where they talked about foreign policy 
Yeah. And Castro mentioned that we ripped up the Iran deal and I'm still bummed about that. <laughs> yeah. Like that 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 just seems like something that feels like top stupidity to me. So the Iran deal was a deal between the United States and Iran and essentially the United States stopped putting massive san- not just the United States this was in coalition with many many other world powers in our you know most NATO countries and so the United States and the other countries gave up putting sanctions on Iran for an, an exchange of them stopping producing enriched uranium and giving up their current supplies at that point and putting in a series of checks that would happen on a regular basis to make sure that they're not enriching uranium. Now, we had that, and some people were thought it was a bad deal because at some point, the provision sunset, which means that you know after 25 years, unless they renegotiated things, that they would stop testing. Well, it seemed they decided that it was most prudent to rip the whole thing up get to zero inspections and zero limits on enriched uranium and that we would renegotiate another one like Iran would come back to the table willingly after they just spent years and years and years negotiating a deal for it to be torn up and the next person to come and say, let's do this again. It it just it gets me. And for for good faith discussion, you know, let's say that Trump really did think he could get a better deal. I'm all for that. I'm not saying that we can't renegotiate deals, but then you have to do the thing, right? You can't can't just say it's going to happen and then leave it alone for years. Or here's something even crazier. If he had been very serious, if he was very serious about making sure that Iran did not have nuclear weapons and trying to negotiate a better deal, why don't you keep the existing safeguards going on while you try to negotiate for more? Whoa. It's like we were... uh, Oh, I I don't have an analogy, <laughs> but if we were truly worried about them getting nuclear weapons, we would want it at so, to keep monitoring and having limits on what they could have that have real repercussions instead of tearing it up and bringing it back to zero. It just seems stupid. Like it's like, OK, we need to reassess our. uh Like we have a road where it seems like a lot of people are getting into accidents and it seems to be like it's because people are driving uh, too fast. And so they put in a speed limit that's 10 below what it was before and people are still having accidents. And then we go, well, you know what? We need to reassess this. We need a better speed limit. But, you know, for a while we're going to have no (laughs) speed limit until we can figure out what the correct speed limit is. Well, and... in all fairness, there there was at least, I think, uh, at least lip service to the idea that scrapping the deal would create leverage because the the sanctions would uh, continue effect. So there would be that leverage there where there's there, there's not really a negotiation or leverage in, in the speed limit analogy. 
Yeah, but it, it was also an issue because with the U.S. ripping up the deal, it was only the U.S. putting sanctions back on. So the original, before the original deal, it was from the U.S. and most of sure. Europe were sanctioning yeah, them. It was a good and, idea, but in, in the spirit of good faith debate, we I think we should at least admit that there there was some rationale to it, even if it wasn't well thought out. Like, if it were to come out that on the other end of this, we end up getting a better deal, or if they had, then I would have been all for it. I'm a believer that better is better, no matter who it comes from. But it, it this has not gotten better, and it seems like everybody's forgotten. Um, let me see. What else did they talk about in foreign policy? They talked a lot about what's going on in Turkey and Syria mm-hmm. right now. Yeah, the big foreign policy disagreement that really came about, everyone sort of seemed to agree that the withdrawal of troops to protect the Kurds was charitably a mistake, at worst, a, an invitation to genocide. But I think that when they got into a broader discussion of the role of U.S. military presence in foreign nations. Buttigieg and Gabbard seemed to show some genuine disagreement. Yes. Um, Which I thought was interesting with them being the two veterans on the stage that they seemed to be the most at odds. Yeah. It seemed like Gabbard wanted to take the kind of purest everybody out now argument and then Buttigieg wanted the yes, let's get out, but we still need to make sure we're not just creating a massive vacuum. Yeah, and I think Mayor Pete's point is that there is a middle ground between complete abdication and active combat. Right. There there definitely is. We still have a lot of troops in Germany. Yeah. Um and, you know, there, there's no active fighting there, but there's still an American military presence there that in in some part is meant to help be a stabilizing force to help make sure that fighting just doesn't resume. Now, it seems ludicrous to think this in the, you know, however many years after World War II, but after World War II, it definitely felt like it was something necessary. And since now it's completely safe, we're not clamoring. We got to bring our troops home from Germany. If it ends, you know, we're not saying that we're signing up for indefinite wars, but maybe indefinitely there may be troops in an area to help keep it stable. But then we, but from there you get into much bigger um, philosophical ideas about or uh, directional ideas of what we think the military should do. Yeah. Then uh, what? Since I only watched half of the debate, what did they do after foreign policy? Um, uh, talked about guns again. That was a, a feisty moment between Beto and Mayor Pete. Um, oh yeah, and it revealed something that I think is is very toxic about Pete as a candidate. Because to to summarize the disagreement, Beto wants 
a mandatory buyback, although he talked himself in circles regarding how that would happen, how it how he could accomplish that without outright confiscation. And he he didn't he didn't look good on it. And I I don't even I I don't agree with with a, a mandatory buyback policy. Um, I think that there are implementation and philosophical issues with it. And Mayor Pete was of the mind, let's not try to die on the hill of buybacks when we can uh, instead accomplish things like universal background checks. And what really bugs me is that it didn't seem like Mayor Pete was attacking the substance of Beto's policy proposal, but he was saying, let's let's not try for the most progressive policy because it will hurt our objectives in accomplishing more incremental change. When on the debate stage, either in the second or third debate, he had the great sound bite of no matter what we do, the government or the, the Republicans are going to call us crazy socialists. So let's just advocate for the right policy. But then when Beto disagreed with them, his he, he didn't try to appeal to what was the correct policy. He ap- appealed to what was politically expedient. So I, I don't know where he stands. Does he believe that we fight for the best policy or does he believe that we just try to get done what we can? He comes across to me as a guy who is a, a rich Harvard kid who isn't used to people disagreeing with him as passionately as Beto O'Rourke did. And he just seemed so genuinely rattled and angry at any opposition. It really concerned me about his temperament. Ultimately. Mm -hmm. I guess I didn't read as much into that situation, which I did see. I did see that situation, but I guess it's a fair point. I don't have anything in defense or to add to that, I guess. I I, I just, (laughs) I've, I've had, I've long had misgivings about, Pete Buttigieg, it, 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 it just seems like he wants to adopt certain values when it's convenient and abandon them when it's not regarding when he wants to value the right policy versus when he wants to not alienate moderates so that he can get smaller change done. Mm-hmm. And I think either is a valid strategy, but the fact that he won't commit to one and then so pointedly and meanly attacks those who disagree with them is just very troubling to me. Mm-hmm. I play both sides of the coin. Exactly. He plays both sides of the coin and then loses his cool when someone tries to challenge his ideas. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of good things about him, but, you know, I, I live in Indiana now. Run run for something that I can vote for you for. I'd love to vote for you in a statewide election, but you, you mm-hmm. got a long hill to climb to curry my vote in a national election. Also, is, is Gabbard a cop? Isn't that the, the joke? No, Kamala Harris is a cop. Oh, because that was Harris. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Gabbard seems like a narc. <laughs> 
the weirdest thing about Tulsi on stage this time was that she just decided that she was just going to ask Elizabeth Warren questions. That wasn't format that there was no way to accommodate for that, given the constructs of the debate, which she and her team agreed to. But she just decided, you know, Elizabeth Warren's the front runner. I'm just going to ask her questions that she has no chance to answer and then complain about media bias after that strategy doesn't work. It just seems like a lot of people. I mean, it it really seemed to cement in that people believe Warren's the front runner because it seemed like everybody was trying to take jabs at her. Oh, yeah. The the power dynamic on that stage shifted big time. Yeah. No, nobody's taking pot shots at Biden. He, he, he takes his own pot shots at himself every time he opens his mouth. He's, you know, it, it felt like, you know, when he was asked about Hunter Biden, he may as well told a story about how he went down to the popcorn stand with him when he was a kid yeah, or some shit like that. Like it was just not having to do with anything. Um, I remember when I took Hunter to swimming lessons and he swam so well, and I can't imagine he would ever be corrupted. You, you didn't stumble enough for it to be a Biden speech, but, um, <laughs> but, um, I don't know if you've seen the article, but it was a Vox piece. I think that Ezra wrote himself about, yeah, I haven't read it, but it's been in the queue. Yeah, it's it's a really good and persuasive, simple argument, but very persuasive. And you should put this in show notes, or I'll put it in show notes, I, whoever ends up doing that. But it, it's explaining how if the Democrats want to learn from 2016, they need to challenge Biden on his son's dealings in Ukraine because – it's better to find out in the primaries whether or not that's a liability. Bernie Sanders was lauded for refusing to play to the Hillary email scandal in the primary, but then she didn't have to practice defending it in a live situation and mm-hmm. warranted or not, Trump scored a lot of political points on that. So, yeah, and to read emails that. was the biggest story. Yeah. Uh, for her. So. So it stands to reason uh, that whether or not you think it's valid or fair grounds for the primary discussion, being Cory Booker and coming in and saying it is absolutely offensive that you would even ask that is a self-defeating strategy. And I, I think if we're going to try and play the bigger, you know, play the role of the bigger man here, we've got to ask those questions. Absolutely. I mean, Jared and, Ivon- and Ivanka made something like 80 or $90 million while working in the, in the, the white house. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. And so why was Hunter there? Yeah. Why Joe was Biden, I Biden admits it was bad judgment. If he thinks it was bad judgment, why, why does he feel like he doesn't have to answer for it? Yeah. And it, it's not even the, oh, I'm sorry. Let's get over this kind of deal. Yeah. Maybe it was bad, but I'm not sorry. Yeah. And then, and then I meant to look it up, but he, on the debate stage, he said, my son's statement speaks for itself. And um, excuse me, you're on national television. What did he say? Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't I didn't read Hunter Biden's statement to prep for the debates. It was evasive and it was more 
more evidence that Joe Biden has too many red flags. Yeah, he he is he's not up for the task and he's not who I want to be representing the party. And I don't think it's who you want to be representing the party. It's yeah. not. And it's uh, and I and no and it doesn't seem to be anybody I personally knows who wants him to be representing the party. Um, well, who's he's also a Democrat. By this notion of electability that he's the biggest name and therefore the most likely to defeat Trump, but that's fundamentally not how I see this election. I see this election as one that requires enthusiasm. I think that there's too many high up in the Democratic Party who take it as a a foregone conclusion that Trump is a deeply unpopular president when I don't believe he is. Um, I mean, his, his numbers haven't moved. Like his numbers move within like a three or four point window his entire presidency. Yeah. It's stable. Yeah. Very stable genius. And I think that it's going to take, you know, a concerted effort to encourage people to show up to the polls. Does does Joe Biden inspire someone who isn't a likely voter to turn out? No, I don't think he does. I think he has massive institutional support among the main line of the party. But if that if, if, if being supported by the anointed Democrats was enough to beat Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton would be the president this yeah. day as we sit here. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's not what we're looking for. We, we have to put up a fight. We just yeah. can't we can't just let it go. Just that it's a foregone conclusion. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and and then we got at the Senate map, and oh, it's party's in rough shape right now. I, I mean, I, I feel like I'm one of those guys who's who's you know going to reliably vote Democrat, but I don't feel a a in an, an identity within the Democratic Party. I don't. I, I don't have any special affinity for the good old boys and girls no, in blue. I mean. I'm not either, but it, I mean, anything that I do have is because it's what I lines up with. I believe in policy positions. I mean, if somehow a whole nother party that more closely aligned to my positions showed up and was able to be electorally viable, then I would go with that. You remember in high school when you were stumping for, uh, uh, Ron Paul? Yeah. I had my, uh, libertarian minute and, yeah, I was almost uh, Ben Shapiro. <laughs> I know that obviously the the nature of the ideology that's represented is, is is no longer consistent with your beliefs, but you did say something to me that I distinctly remember <laughs> regarding, regarding Ron Paul that I think actually has has a significant amount of merit. You said. Um, you know, I, I know that that his views are pretty far out there, but with how difficult it is to get anything done, perhaps it, it takes someone who wants to push the envelope super far. I'm obviously paraphrasing. Yeah. This, these are not 
This is this is Ev speak and of, I, of what Joe yeah, long you doesn't long even time. remember Joe speak of what I said. <laughs> yeah. So so maybe it takes someone who wants to push the envelope a long distance just to get that envelope pushed a little bit. And I don't know. I just thought that that comment was 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 rather prescient. I know that I read an article in the 2016 election cycle from The Atlantic called The Pragmatic Case for Bernie Sanders, which essentially articulated the same thing that you figured out in 11th grade. So and it's kind of like the idea of the Overton window, except more in practice than just the idea space. I know you're not a big fan, but you know who is pushing the Overton window in this field? Ooh, are you going to say O'Rourke? No. no. Okay, that's good. No, Beto's best quality is his, his, his public speaking. Uh-huh. No, Andrew Yang. Yeah, Andrew Yang. I mean... None of, the, none of the main stage candidates were talking about universal basic income, but at this most recent debate, both Julian Castro and Tulsi Gabbard expressed new support for it so yeah i like it i like um because i'm i'm a shill i kind of i really like ezra klein and i have a view that's kind of similar to his that we talk about universal basic income as kind of a a saving grace from automation which i don't think is quite true like if you if you lose your eighty thousand dollar a year trucking job you're not going to be very satisfied making twelve thousand i mean it'll be income Mm -hmm. but it won't be nearly anywhere close and make anybody really feel satisfied but if we're talking about our utopian ideals then i'm all for it um it seems like a good idea and Another thing is that I, I I do really support the idea of a universal basic income, and actually we should probably devote an episode to that at some point. Yeah, maybe sometime. Yeah, eventually. Um, but I do think that Andrew Yang's rationale for it is wrong. He has this apocalyptic view of automation, and sure, there's going to be frictional unemployment. There's going to be changing sectors of what parts of our economy produce jobs and which become more automated. But throughout the history of our country, we've rebounded. Automation makes certain fields more efficient, which then causes us to devote more human capital to other mm-hmm. fields. It's the it's the same reason why the agriculture industry has declined as a percentage of the workforce and yet we don't have mass unemployment it's hard in the meantime and that's where universal basic income is really helpful is in transitional periods but you're right it's a, a, a a basic income is not meant to take the place of a productive member of our economic system earning a living and contributing to the common good. I mean, what he's kind of saying it, but not saying is that it's, it's real shitty for people when they get their jobs automated away. If we look at total employment figures, a lot of times the people who lose their jobs due to technology um, just kind of lose out. But then, yeah, that leaves room in the labor force for other things to come along 
for other people to come and win. Now, there is a very real argument or question of what do we do with these people who just lose <laughs> um, purely by circumstance? Mm-hmm. What do we do to help them out? But that's not the same thing as job apocalypse coming. Job apocalypse, coining it job here on apocalypse. Yep, we're running it as the cover story. That's we're putting the, it on t-shirts and capitalizing. That's the title, even though this is only a very minor segment. No, it's not. <laughs> anyway, I think that's a good place to end the discussion on the debate, especially since we're going a little long on time. Um, Castro had a great night. Fantastic night. Good work, Julian. Good on Warren for getting that center podium. Yeah, um, she did. She is my three. Yeah. So um, now we're in kind of the end section. Do we have a little end riff that we could do for like five minutes? Well, we both saw Joker now. Yeah, I saw Joker. Uh huh. What do you think? I enjoyed it. Um, I think that uh, Todd Phillips is not the most mature director. And I Mm -hmm. think that there are moments where that shows, but for the most part, I think it was tough not to see a lot of tortured humanity in that story, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. and sort of a, a well-constructed indictment of a society that has allowed its various systems to abandon compassion an economic system which abandons compassion produces guys at the top like Thomas Wayne who dismiss those at the bottom like Arthur mm-hmm. and create and and take away the space for them to be productive a political system which emphasizes other aspects than common good is detrimental to those at the margins. When Arthur has his social services cut, he is forced deeper into this spiral. Even before he loses access to his caseworker, she doesn't seem particularly interested in what he says. Uh-huh. They're just doing it because they have to. Yeah. And she doesn't even have resources. She says as much. She says the the people at the top don't care about you and they don't care about me. You know, she has to go to work in a in a dingy looking office. And it's it's not a good situation all the way around because the people who make policy don't have compassion and don't care what it's like to live that day-to-day reality. I I can't remember the exact quotation, but at at the end during his final rant, Arthur says, guys like you never think about what it's like to be a guy like me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably as close to a thesis statement for Joker as we can get. Yeah. Um, And, and uh, the, the entertainment industry even I think is indicted when you've got someone like uh, Murray, Robert De Niro's character who mines, Others myths misfortune for comedy, it also further alienates Arthur. So when you take all of these examples of systems which abandon compassion and force Arthur deeper into his worst tendencies, what we conclude is that Phillips 
is indicting modern society, which doesn't offer compassion. And although maybe I wouldn't necessarily agree that with the resultant violence, yeah, like the Joker says, uh, you get what you deserve. Maybe we don't get what we deserve, but at least we get something of our own creation. Yeah. That this society where things are going to hell in a handbasket, it seems, constantly, is of our own doing. And it takes radical amounts of empathy and compassion to reverse these types of cycles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, for for a for a freaking uh Batman franchise, that's pretty good. Yeah. I'm pleased with that. Yeah. I I just felt mixed because while I agree with all that you said, it felt like I was supposed to feel compassion when even after all of the the horrible shit he does. And I was like, okay, I get why you do it why you broke but uh all the stuff that happens when you broke ain't good and and you're not you're not strictly justified and this isn't me like trying to be on a on a high horse that was just like i just i i walked out of the theater not quite knowing how to feel yeah um I I can definitely see that where I think that uh, the implied author sort of comes in and guides our interpretation lies in a couple of places. One is in the ending, right? Joker doesn't get away. He ends up in the institution. And even though there's some more mayhem at the end, it's not like the, the film allows him to succeed and ride off into the sunset. Mm hmm. And number two, I think, is is actually in the graphic nature of the violence, which has been criticized by some. I think what that serves to do is to erode some of the sympathy for Arthur that we've built by seeing him abused by the guy on the subway or the asshole at his job that rats him out and gets him fired mm-hmm. by, by showing all of the blood and by of the terror that he inspires in other people. I think it's fairly clear that Arthur isn't a hero, but maybe at least we can understand a little bit better the circumstances that shaped the choices that he made. Yeah. And I was thinking, you know, it's like, okay, this is an origin story about a villain. Like, inherently their story is not going to be one of moral triumph. Exactly. Um, So it, it, for me, it was just kind of like, well, you know, I I don't quite like it, but I can't quite fault it. So it's not a a glaring, you know, it's not an example where they completely dropped the ball and made it seem like this horrible person was a great guy. It's, it's that he did bad things and I don't quite know what, you know, and he was really troubled and got abandoned by society. Don't So I don't quite know what to do with that all. Well, I, I think that it's um, it's no accident that you felt that way. I think that it, it tries to deal with difficult and conflicting social realities. I don't believe that it's justified that Arthur started this 
insurrection through murder and chaos, but I can't not feel sympathetic for someone who's kicked around for their whole life, at least to a degree. Right. This this is going to sound reductive, but uh, there's moral gray areas in life. And and it sucks to confront. I mean, we talked about that with the, the Native American mascot. Exactly. And you so often you you sort of have to pick a side even in this conversation you're you're we're sort of implicitly asking you to pick a side you know joe do you like the movie do you not and you're mm-hmm. sort of in in that that middle area and it's an uncomfortable place to be yeah but sometimes it's an important place to be well well thanks for telling me i'm important Oh, I just said you were do you're in an important place. I, I heard important, so I'm important. <laughs> um, I certainly certainly can't argue with that. Well, I think that concludes our conversation today. We would like to thank you all for listening. If you have any comments, recommendations, burning things that you want to tell us, check out our new email address at podcast at adequatelyinformed.com. We will maybe read it. I'll, you know what? We'll we probably read it. read it. I'll pick it up a notch. Okay. Evan says, well, we will read it. Okay. And <laughs> uh, also like to thank Walker Kelly for the, logo design which is featured on all of our different platforms well anyway i'm joe hicks and i'm evan kelly we hope that you were adequately informed all right